Uh, we are going to be in Psalm 78 to start out uh, this week. So if you guys would like to turn there in your Bibles. And I'll be, well, we won't be looking at all of Psalm 78, but just probably till verse 8. And I'll begin by reading uh, from there. A mascal of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but we will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and of his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell of them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This text in Psalm 78 begins uh, one of the longer psalms in the Psalter. And it, if you flip through the rest of Psalm 78, you'll notice it's just a giant historical recap of God's faithfulness to Israel and their ongoing rebellion against him. But before he gets into all the specifics, this psalm sets out its agenda on the front end by highlighting the purpose of the writing. The purpose of this writing is to reflect on and commend to the Israelite peoples the burden of teaching God to their children, to the next generation. Just to highlight a couple of places in the text where that is seen, you'll notice in verse 4, these things uh, that we have heard, uh, we will not hide them from our children, but we will tell them to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord. So rather than concealing what God has done, the Israelites are tasked with actively instructing their children what God has done. Uh, God has appointed his law in Israel, but you'll notice that in verse uh, 5 at the end of it, it says that he, d- he appoints this law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. So the law isn't given just for the blessing of the people who are physically there at the giving of the law, but also so that they might propagate that forward into their offspring. Uh, and then uh, once again in verse 6, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. So these are children who are not yet uh, alive, not yet uh, in gestation. Children yet unborn will know this law. And those children, the ones yet unborn, uh, this is also also in verse 6, will arise and tell it to their children. So this is a vision of God, a God who is merciful and gracious and who passes his blessing on through the propagation of, of offspring. Now, last week in our time together for this session, we talked about uh, discipleship. And the, the purpose of discipleship in the, in the grounds of the local church is to propagate the mission and the teachings of Jesus onto people uh, in our congregation, people we encounter. So you can meet someone on the street who you have no relationship to, and you can share the gospel with them. They can come to faith. And then you can begin the process of discipling that person into faith. What does it mean to study the word? What does it mean to believe in the attributes of God? Uh, What does it mean to have all these various pieces of discipleship? And last week we talked about there's various facets to what it means to disciple. And one of the pieces that I left off at that time is an idea that is pretty much absent in large parts of the evangelical Western church and something that I think we ought to reclaim and, and get a vision for in our local church is the idea of generational or familial 
blessings, which God commands for, uh, for the children of believing parents. So here's the idea, is that God commands discipleship not just for adult people out there in the world who don't know him, but also that believers, when they're raising their children, are to, are to in some sense, disciple their children into the worldview of the Christian faith. Now, the, the statement often is given that, and you might have heard something like this, that people don't want to coerce or brainwash their children into religion, and so therefore they'll wait till their children grow up, let the children make up their mind, and then if they choose Christ, they'll maybe disciple them at that point. But the text of Scripture here almost implies this worldview teaching to the children as a command for not adults who've made up their mind, but for children of these Israelite peoples. So the, the children are of, of believers are to be discipled. The children of believers are to be taught the ways of the Lord. The children of believers are to be invested in and in some sense treated as disciples in the kingdom. They're to be treated as those who are being instructed in the ways of the Lord. Now the purpose of this is not so that the children get head knowledge, but so that the children can worship and serve the Lord faithfully and then pass that worship and service of the Lord onto their children as well, that this would be something that's a generational kind of investment into the people of God. In the Western church, I think we've done a wonderful job of capturing the idea of discipleship out in the world, getting people who are not believers, teaching them the gospel and engrafting them into the people of God. But that has often come at the expense of families and homes and having them be discipled faithfully for the Lord. It's, it's more rare than, than, it, than would be right, I think, uh, for, for someone, and, and you might think about this in your own life, uh, if you have believing parents, uh, it is very rare for you to have, let's say, a substantial and robust faith, dialogue, conversation, and relationship with your parents as well. Though That is an exceedingly rare kind of situation. Many people who grew up with believing parents grew up with parents who were reserved in terms of religion and did not want to, uh, and did not have really that kind of relational dynamic where religion was something that was talked about in the home or something that was passed on or even instructed to the children. Largely, the Western church has punted that to the job of churches and youth groups and youth pastors for them to do that kind of job. But in the text here, it seems that though that it is though the parents' job to take the law of the Lord, which is given to the people of Israel, and pass that forward to the next generation. So this is very much, I think, under the scope of discipleship. And then we might come to the point where we, we realize, okay, I get the point that the children are to be taught and instructed. Then the question is, how? How does that instruction and teaching happen? There are many ways that the church has historically wrestled with that kind of question. How does the church instruct uh, its children? How does the church instruct those who are uh, infants or, or young children in the faith? Um, how, does it, how does it disciple them well? And one of the most common answers of the church throughout the history of the church has been that this happens primarily in the home, in the family, daily through what is a, pra- a practice which is called family worship. And the idea of family worship is very simple. It is you take all the things that scripture commands of people to do for God, to worship him, to adore him, to learn about him, to study his ways. And you take that and, and, you, and you don't make it an individualistic thing like we do often in the Western church that you should be studying your Bible and reading it. Yes, you should. But you take that and first apply it to a broader sense and you say, okay, what about a family unit? What does that look like in, in the family? And so, uh, and, and it can't be divorced really any lower than that because the family is the basic structural unit of society. It's not an individual. The family is the basic structural unit, which can propagate offspring and, and, and forms the backbone of churches and, and all these kinds of things. So to give a couple of reflections on what family worship has been looked at uh, in historical reflection, I'll be pulling these quotes from 
Family Worship by Don Whitney. Uh, and he, he, gives it, uh, he gives a whole chapter to just the historical thought and reflection of the church on the topic of family worship. And this is from starting in the age of the Puritans. They, they considered family worship in this way. They said that it was the husband's responsibility to channel the family into religion, to instruct the family in religion, to lead the family in worship daily, ideally twice a day, and to set an example of sober godliness at all times and in all manners. To this end, he must be willing to take time out of his schedule to learn the faith that he is then charged to teach to his children. So the Puritans consider the locus of family worship starting with the father in the home and then propagating that onto the children in the home, that he doesn't learn for his own benefit, but he learns to pass on to his children. Richard Baxter, when he reflects on this very same truth, says, whoever used these duties seriously and did not find the benefits within them, what families be they in which grace and heavenly mindedness prosper, but those that observe these duties. Those families that actually participate in family worship are the ones who are most flourishing and most blessed by God to actually engage in this kind of discipleship with their children. Another Puritan, uh, Matthew Henry, wrote it this way. He said, the church in the house will be a good legacy. So when he's talking about the church in the house, he's talking about a corporate group of people in in the structure of a family who worship. The church in the house would be a good legacy. Nay, it would be a good inheritance to be left to your children after you. So in the West, we are obsessed with the idea of leaving a good inheritance to our children, often in the terms of financial flourishing, opportunities, uh, access to college, and things like that. But faith, faith is the most beneficial inheritance and blessing we can actually pass on to the next generation, onto our children. And so, as Matthew Henry says, it's, it is the inheritance to be considered. Finances, obviously, you want to secure children's financial future. You want to leave them an inheritance if you are so able. But faith is an inheritance you can and should pass on to children. And then one last piece from this same text uh, in the historical reflection. This is from Charles Spurgeon. He says, those that pray within the family do well. They that pray and read the scriptures do better. But they that pray and read and sing do best of all. So he's describing family worship from the smallest up to the largest scale at which it could be observed. Now, all those historical quotes don't land the case, but I started by showing you in scripture where this is commanded and then looking at the church's historical reflection on these ideas. And then we can naturally ask a couple of questions. Well, what if you don't have a family? What if you are uh, an individual, you don't have children yet? Uh, How does this thing apply to you, right? Because I'm talking about this broadly as though everyone in the church should know about it, and I think you ought to. This is something that it cannot just start with someone once they are married and they have seven kids running around. If you try to start family worship at that point, it, you should do it. It's better, better late than never. But it's also, it's also a hard habit to form that deep into your life. It's a really hard habit to form. One of the ideas that I'm hoping to accomplish in, in our time together here is to capture a vision for family worship that as an individual you are so ingrained into that by the time you maybe do have the privilege of being married and having children, that you actually, it, you just kind of walk seamlessly into this thing. At the first and foremost, I think this, this takes place in our individual practice of daily reverence and worship before the Lord. We often in the West call this uh, quiet time or times of reading the Bible and, and prayer. I think we ought to consider those not just personal devos. We ought to really think about them as personal times of worship, where we go before the Lord to read about him, to pray and interact with him, and then finally to, to respond rightly in worship towards him. That that complete unit is actually what I think is the best, most fitting time 
uh, for let's say personal quiet time in the morning, that it should have these, these various elements, learning about the Lord, meditating on his truth, communing with him, praying with him, uh, and then finally uh, worshiping and singing towards him. If that is observed in an individual level, family worship down the line actually becomes much more easy. It's actually just another progression with just some more people present. But I think it starts at the, at the individual level. So as an individual, having a habit where you regularly don't just read the word and study it, but you read the word and study it and then pray and worship, that whole kind of corpus of a healthy diet of worship before the Lord, I think is, is really commended to us in Scripture as a, as a right response. For how is it possible for us to know about the Lord and learn about Him without responding in worship? How would it be possible for us to study a truth about God and, and all of His glorious faithfulness to us and not rightly respond in a prayer of thanksgiving and then subsequently a psalm of praise? All, I think that's a fitting just response to God in worship. And it really, if you think about this, the Israelites in Psalm 78, uh, they couldn't lead their children in worship if they first don't know how to observe worship themselves. So they really need to have this down personally before they can do it corporately. Uh, in the same way as it, you as a Christian, it's, it's hard to just go week to week only worshiping the Lord on Sunday. You really need to have a diet of regularly being in the Word, regularly being in prayer, because otherwise those Sundays feel few and far between, and it's almost like you're just getting the gunk out by the time Sunday service comes around. Uh, you ought to be observing and walking with the Lord weekly so that when you come to Sunday, it's, it's the climax of the week, the, the focus, the pinnacle, but it's really a continuation of the rhythm of life that is present throughout the other six days of the week as well, that you regularly commune with and ultimately worship the Lord. So the idea would be get it at an individual level right first. And then the idea would be to expand that practice uh, into marriage and into families so that children and, and spouses and everyone involved is actually has a, has a corporate dialogue of faith together within the home. Think about how strange this would be if you were in a, a local church setting where you could worship the Lord in the, in the worship gathering, you could hear the word preached, you could read the word together, you could sing psalms and, and praises together, and then you walk out the door and talking about faith and things like that is kind of taboo. It's off topics between individuals within the church because we, don't, we just don't go there. That's a little bit what it's like if you were to be believers in a home, raising children in a Christian home, but to not have dialogue ongoing about what does it mean to worship God? What does it mean to fear him? What does it mean to love him? These are dialogues we need to have. And the church needs to have it as well between individual members within the church. These are things that we should have as natural conversations, ongoing conversations among ourselves and also among uh, those even small children within the, the life of the church, that the children are, are to be considered seriously within the kingdom of God as those who are to be taught and instructed in the ways of the Lord. This is something that uh, parents of children are tasked with, and it's something the church uh, can't be the sole responsibility for. Uh, many things that, there's many things that the church is responsible for, but the primary responsibility for instructing of children actually falls to the family, to the fathers, and then to the mothers, and then to... Uh, the raising of children. That's not, that doesn't mean that the church has no role to play in that. Obviously, the church does. But the, the church cannot substitute wholly uh, a negligent father or a negligent mother. In, in some sense, the church is trying to overcome a lot of things at that point. It's not really, it's not able to flourish and grow in the same way that someone who has a father and mother invested in their faith, who then goes to church and is then poured into, that's an astronomical level of investment. Uh, in some sense, you're really trying to overcome a great deficit if you have someone who has no parental involvement in their faith. And the church can and should pour into them, but with parents, it is a, a much greater blessing. And I think scripture gives us kind of that, that vision of how seriously the Israelites are charged with 
raising their children in the laws and instructions of the Lord. Psalm 78, you might have noticed, uh, is really a reflection on the most famous of the Old Testament scriptures, uh, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, uh, where the instruction given to the people of God is to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength. Uh, and then they are to instruct their children in the ways of the Lord, that, the, that even the children would know the ways of the Lord and, and fear him and love him. And this is in Psalm 78, where he says, they have been tasked with instructing their children to not forget the work of the Lord and to keep his commandments so that they would not be rebellious like the Israelites who died in the wilderness. This is, this is the idea. And in the Western church specifically, uh, one of the greatest causes of loss or death within the Western church, atrophy, if you will, is the fact that children will grow up in Christian homes, and then by the time they're in high school or college, they will often leave the faith, turn away, deconstruct, whatever you want to call it, and they'll never, they'll never look back. And a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times that is caused by the fact that there's no real sense that the parents value this enough to actually instruct their children. Parents will sit their children down and talk to them about the importance of wise spending habits or wise finances. Parents will sit their uh, uh, children down and talk about the importance of getting into a good school and studying hard and getting good grades. But those same parents often will not sit their children down and talk to them about the seriousness of, of faith and devotion towards God and, and loving him. And that's something I think we ought to capture well in a local church because that means growth in the church happens not just from outside, those who, are, who the gospel is shared with and who come to faith, but also from within. Those who are born into the church, who grow up within the church, are actually people who are seriously considered as disciples of that church, people who you ought to rightly disciple. The idea with, within Don Whitney's book um, is that if this is done well, the goal is that a generation from now, this book is no longer necessary. One of the reasons he writes it is because he knows this is a missing link within the life of the church. And so his goal in writing the book, he says it in one of the later chapters, is so that this book is no longer needed in the future because it is just lived out in life where children actually grow up knowing family worship is a normal thing. It's something I know about. It's something I'm going to do in my family. It's just kind of a standard practice, much like uh, personal quiet time in the morning is for many Western Christians where it's kind of an assumed thing. If you've been in the church for a long enough time, you know it's kind of an expected rule for you to get up and regularly within the day, uh, read the Bible, pray, commune with the Lord. That's, that's an expected norm within the life of the church if you were, you've grown up within it. Family worship, it, Don Whitney would like it to reach that level, and I, I with him would like, well, would like it to reach that level of familiarity as well. Because one of the things that ought not to be lost on us, and this is returning back to Psalm 78, is the idea that this has a serious, substantial blessing for Israel as a nation. So this concludes in verse 8. It has a protective feature, that they would not be like their fathers. This refers to those who are wicked in the wilderness. A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So the goal of family worship, the goal of this kind of communal family instruction is so that Israel as a nation will preserve and prosper and live long in the land and be a people who actually is nationally and corporately identified with, with God, with Yahweh. That it's not just something that it's the parents' faith, but it's a faith that the parents raise their children into as well. Part of the idea with this, let's say if you think about this at a church level, uh, it is a strange thing, or I think it, it, it would be a strange thing, if, if the parents really in all other manner happen to pass an inheritance onto their children, but then when it comes to faith, arguably the most important thing that the parents have in their life, the child just departs from that and walks away because there's no real importance or, or emphasis placed on it. 
you and I, if you've had a, a faithful uh, mom or dad who, who walked with you, who even talked about faith with you, even read the Bible with you, that is a, a blessing beyond measure to be able to commune with your parents and talk to them about faith. It's, a, it's, it's an incalculable advantage that you have given to you as a blessing. And, and God knows this. is why he instructs the Israelites to walk in this faithfully. And the Israelites know this. That's why they're always writing psalms of reflection, talking about the blessing of children, the blessing of generational faithfulness, and the idea that they should seriously take the charge to teach God's law to, to their kids. Specifically in the West, one of the biggest hurdles to this is that we think of ourselves primarily as individuals. We don't think of ourselves as a corporate people. We don't think about ourselves as a corporate body. We think about ourselves primarily as individual persons. So when you come to faith, you think, I have a relationship with God, a personal relationship, and, and that's a good angle to have. But if that comes at the cost of thinking, therefore I belong to a people, a corporate body of believers who worship and gather together, that's a, that's a dangerous thing because then you have Christians who strike out on their own, who have no belonging with, with a church, with a church family, with other believers. They have no fellowship within the body of Christ. And that's, that's a dangerous place to be in. And the reason that exists in the Western church is because we're so individualistic. We're so personal. We, we think if I have a relationship with God individually, that's all that matters and I can somehow flourish in that setting. Now, God can be gracious if you're the only believer in your context to flourish in that setting, but he also gives the common grace of, of a church family, a body to belong to. Uh, that, that corporate identity, in part, goes a long way in understanding the purpose of, as a family unit, worshiping the Lord together as well. That this is not just something that the father does in his quiet time individually, and the wife gets up at some point later and, and does that individually, and then the children get up and maybe or maybe not do it. The idea is that a family is really a unit, a, a corporate identity, and that family ought to, as a corporate identity, worship the Lord in the same way that individuals ought to worship the Lord as well, in the same way that the church gathers to worship the Lord. That we are not just individual people, but we are people who are part of a body, and that body was bought with a price by the precious blood of Christ. And as a response of that, the body ought to worship Christ faithfully. So this is the idea of a family worship. It, it dovetails right into discipleship, and it really flourishes and is the backbone upon which I think what, what we'll talk about next week, the spiritual disciplines are built upon is that first we have corporate disciplines that then flow out into our individual expressions of faith, those personal spiritual disciplines. So with that, let me, let me just close in a word of prayer and then we can uh, unpack some discussion time. Father, we thank you that you are a God who has promised blessings to your people, particularly uh, that you are invested uh, not just in us as an individual, but in us as part of your body, and in us as part of a family that is to, to grow and to flourish and to propagate the gospel, not just externally by the preaching of the gospel, but also the internally by the raising of those who are faithful to follow your ways. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the fact that you are a God who has, who has revealed yourself in this way. Uh, you are a God who is faithful to the children and to the children's children, to the thousandth generation. Uh, we are thankful to you for that. And Lord, we pray that we would actually seize hold of that promise and walk within faithfulness towards it and be obedient to your word. We pray this in your name. Amen.